If you have your Bibles, grab them. The book of John, that's where we're at this morning, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Now, I grew up in the 90s, which I would say was peak American culture. We had the Backstreet Boys, but we also grew up with what I would say was peak country music. You know, a little before that was still good, but what we got now is terrible. It ain't country music anymore. We grew up with Shania Twain and Garth Brooks. <laughs> this is how I get y'all to talk to me about amen and Okay, come on. We had, we had Garth Brooks, we had Tim McGraw, you know. Um, Tim McGraw, when I was in high school, came out with this song called Live Like You Were Dying. And it blew up, it got popped. Y'all know it? <laughs> oh, man. Um, and and in, the, in the song, he essentially asks the question, if you found out you were dying, how would you spend your time? How would you spend your time? What would you do? And he, he says, you know, he would go skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing, and he'd go 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And then the song takes a little more serious note, and he says that he would love deeper and spoke sweeter and give forgiveness that he'd been denied. And the chorus ends with the line that says, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Why would he or anyone else say that we should live like we were dying? Well, because when you know you're dying, it puts everything into perspective. It puts everything into the right place. All of a sudden, things that were really important to you all of a sudden no longer matter. And all of a sudden, those things that uh, you know you needed to do, all of a sudden you have the courage to finally do them. This week, our series on encountering the Messiah takes a turn. It takes a turn toward what we have called Passion Week, which is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus is heading toward the cross. He knows he is about to die. And today, I want us to see what it looked like for Jesus to live like he was dying. What did Jesus use his last days on earth to do? What was so important? What did he want to make sure he didn't miss and not do? What was so valuable that he wanted to make sure that before his last breath, he accomplished it? For you and I, the answer to that question might be similar to Tim McGraw's song, there might be a bucket list of things that you want to make sure that you get to do. You might, you know, want to love the people around you better and spend time with them and all of those sorts of things before you're gone. But for Jesus, the answer was simple. When he knew he was about to die, he wanted to make sure that he got to wash the disciples' feet. He wanted to make sure he could serve the disciples and wash their feet. Here at the end of Jesus' life, he wanted to make sure that his students, his disciples, understood the, this important truth. But it wasn't enough for him to lecture to them. It wasn't enough for him to give a, a talk on the importance of serving, on the importance of, of putting other people above yourself and taking care of them. Instead, he models and gives us a living example, an object lesson that the disciples would never forget. Let's read together in the book of John. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1, John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says these words. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand that I have done what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. This is the word of the Lord. I want to make clear from the top of the sermon what Jesus' point is here. It's very clear. It is this. Jesus is creating a kingdom unlike anything the world has ever seen. He is creating a kingdom of servants. He is creating a new community, a new kingdom full of servants. Imagine a kingdom where everyone is on equal footing. A kingdom where everyone is on equal footing, where there are no power plays, there are no authoritarians, that there is no political maneuvering to find yourself to the top, where there are no power trips, no egos, no selfishness, no uh, one, nobody who's always you know, one-upping everyone else, but a kingdom full of people who genuinely care for, love, and serve everyone around them with a selfless, loving heart. That is the sort of world that our king is making. And he gives his disciples a, a glimpse into that reality, a glimpse into that world uh, here in this encounter with the Messiah. He shows them that in his kingdom, even the highest, even the king of kings himself gets on his knees to wash the feet of his students. So how do we go about becoming the type of people that live in a kingdom and in a community like this, in a world like this, like the one Jesus is modeling here. I want us to notice three things, three things that will enable us, or begin us on the journey to become servants like Jesus. Number one, we will only genuinely serve others when we truly love them. We will only genuinely serve others when we truly love them. Remember verse 1, he says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, it says. He loved them to the end. Jesus loved his disciples. You see, these 12 men were more than 12 assistants. 
that, that were hired to help him achieve some tasks. These were guys that he poured into, that he invested in, that he trusted in. These were true, deep friends that he loved. Now it says that he loved them to the end. And our first thought here is that, well, maybe he just it means that he loved him until his last breath. But it means more than that. He, he loved him to the end is more than that. It's the Greek word telos. And telos means an end goal or a purpose. Right? Jesus loved these guys, uh, meaning his, his, his love was culminating in the purpose for which he came, which was to love them through a cross. That he was going to love them, uh, put his love on display for them, and his giving his life for them. Not just with his last breath, but that his last breath was for them. That his death was for them. That his love had come with purpose to save them and giving his life for them. To forgive them of their sin and to bring them into his kingdom forever. You know, the Bible says, greater love has no man than he who gives his life for a friend. And Jesus uh, truly loved these disciples. And he doesn't just love them, right? He doesn't just love them because they're perfect. He doesn't just love them because uh, they're his best friends and they had it all right. Like, these dudes are constantly messing up. These, I mean, even in this story, Peter is telling his master, his Lord, you ain't washing my feet. Right? Who are you, Peter, to tell the king of kings, to tell the one that you call Lord and master what to do? Right? And, and, and then he's like, no, no, not just my feet. Wash all of me. Right? He's always putting his foot in his mouth. Just recently you have the, some of the disciples arguing over who is going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. Who is going to have authority when his kingdom comes and they're arguing about position and about power. They're always messing up, always putting their foot in their mouth, always uh, making mistakes. And Peter here in just a couple days is going to deny his master, deny his Lord three times. I don't know that man. I don't know him. It's not me. You're thinking of someone else. I don't know him. I'm not his disciple, he would say three times. And yet still, despite all of their failures and all of their gaffes, Jesus loves these guys. So much so that he's going to die for them. And the amazing thing about that is, is that he doesn't just love those guys like that, but rather he also loves you like that. He loves you with this same sort of love. Despite your mistakes and your failures. Despite your past and all the black in your ledger, he loves you. Not just with words. Not just with sentimentality, oh, I love you. But he loves you on purpose. And he loves you with a purpose. He loves you to his very, and with his very last breath. In dying, he loves you. And so if we ask the question, what motivates someone who has all the power in the world? What motivates someone who has all the control and all the prestige and all the authority to get on your knees and wash someone's feet? What motivates someone to do that? What would motivate someone who was the master to bow down and do the job of a servant? To do the job of a slave? To wash feet? And the answer to that question is clear. It is love. What motivates the master to get on his feet and wash his students' feet? It is love. Now, we can serve people, of course, whom we don't love, right? Like, we can certainly do that. We can, we can be motivated to serve people for reasons other than love. Of course we can. Sometimes we serve people because we need volunteer hours for school, right? And so we, we need to fill out that sheet and we got to go serve some people and so we go find places to serve. We can certainly do that. 
We can serve because the court has mandated us to do community service, and we've got to go serve. You might sign up to serve in some soup kitchen because there was some cute girl you wanted to go meet, and you know she was going to be there, so you go serve in the soup kitchen, right? There are plenty of ways that we serve. Like you might go serve uh, your, in your work, right? Do go above and beyond and serve in other things that really aren't your job because you're trying to get on your boss's good side. Or maybe you just go and serve because it makes you feel good about yourself, right? There are plenty of reasons that we serve that are self-serving, that they're uh, for, not for them, not out of love, but for ourselves. You might have heard of this old story about this peasant who uh, was a carrot farmer. And he uh, was growing carrots, and he grew the biggest carrot that he'd ever grown. And he goes and he presents it before the king, and he says, Oh, king. You've been such a good king, and I grew this massive carrot, and I wanted to give it to you just to say thank you for being what a wonderful king you were. And the king, receiving that gift, said, oh, man, this is so kind of you. Hey, you know what? Man, I just want to say thanks, and because you're such a great farmer, I want to give you some of my own land to add to yours so that you can continue doing what you love. And he says, king, oh, you don't have to. You're so great. So kind. Thank you so much. And he goes away. But while this is happening, there's a knight who is off to the side watching this take place. And he thinks to himself, oh, if the peasant can get land for a carrot, what might the king give me if I give him a prized horse? And so the next day, the, the knight comes in before the king and he says, oh, king, you are so kind and so gracious and do so much. I have this prized horse I wanted to give to you as a gift to honor you. And the king looks at him and he says, thanks. And the knight's kind of lingering, hanging out like. And the king says, do you know why you're not getting anything in return for the horse? And he says, no. <laughs> you, you, gave the, you gave the farmer all this land for about a carrot. He says, yeah, the peasant gave a carrot to the king, but you gave a horse to yourself. And you see, there's a way that we can serve that's really self-serving. We can serve people. But really, it's about us. Really, it's about us. It's self-serving. There are plenty of other motivations to serve people that are not founded on genuine love. And those, those motivations aren't always wrong, right? Like, you got to get community, community service hours for school. you got to do it, right? But that is not the sort of service Jesus is, has in mind here. The kind of serving one another that happens in the kingdom of God is not self-service, but selfless service motivated by love. It's selfless in that you're not serving other people in order to get people to look at you or to get something out of it. You are serving that person for the simple reality that you love them and want to care for them. And let me say this, to, to, to serve someone because you love them isn't always because you feel love towards them, right? Like, like sometimes you don't have butterflies in your stomach towards somebody anymore. Sometimes you're, you're not feeling all the, all the tinglies towards somebody and you're like, yeah, I want to, I love them, I want to go serve them. No, love is often choosing to love when you don't feel it. It is choosing to love your spouse or a friend or a family member even when they've hurt you or betrayed you or frustrated you. Even when you woke up and the butterflies are gone that morning, choosing to love and choosing to be committed and to serve and be faithful and allowing your heart or your affections to catch up to your actions. And so you serve them, even though you don't feel it, letting the feelings catch up later, right? Jesus serves his friends whom he loves even though they don't, uh, uh, even though they don't deserve it. 
He serves them because he loves them. And in so doing, uh, Jesus is being this living example to us for what his kingdom looks like. And he is showing us this is who you are to be. He says, I'm your master and I've done this, and so you should copy me, mimic me, do this too. You are to love others even when they don't deserve your love. Just as most assuredly you don't deserve my love, and yet still here I am loving you and serving you. You see, the world would scoff at this. The world would scoff and laugh because the world says, seek power, seek might, seek prestige, seek control, seek to never have to work another day in your life and have everyone else do everything for you, to live in luxury and be served hand and foot. But Jesus commands us that no matter how powerful, rich, big, or whatever you are, we're not bigger, richer, or more powerful than he is, and so we are to get on our knees and serve. And the only way we will serve people for their good and not just to serve ourselves is when our service is motivated by love. The second thing we need to see is that we will only serve others regularly when we have humility. We'll only serve others regularly when we serve when we have humility. You know, we, we can certainly do service sometimes, particularly when it benefits us, or if we feel guilty enough, sometimes we'll serve people, right? Which is also self-serving because we're serving in order to make ourselves feel better. But what's in view here is not just serving someone once, but that serving others would be a normal pattern and habit of our lives. And the only way that we're going to make serving a part of our whole life is if we have humility. Notice verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, lay aside his garment, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus puts, puts humility on display. Jesus is their master, and not only that, he's God, and yet he gets up, he takes off his outer garment, he gets on his knees, cleans their feet, and, th- and their feet were dirty. Like, we got to make this point real quick, right? These dudes are wear- wearing sandals, walking on dirt roads, where animals have also been walking that animals aren't potty trained, all right? And they're walking on those very same roads, so these dudes' feet are dirty, and yet God humbles himself enough to clean them. We see here in Jesus' actions a a reenacting of the incarnation, okay? The incarnation is that moment when the Son of God who had lived in paradise and heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit forever, that the Son who's enthroned in glory yet gets up from his seat of authority in heaven, puts on human flesh, humbles himself, and comes to earth. As Jesus rises from supper, strips himself of his garments, and gets on his knees, it is a reminder of how he has lowered himself to the earth to begin with. And now he's lowered himself even further, not just by putting on flesh, but by now getting on his knees to wash their feet. Humility means to lower oneself. And Jesus does that in coming to earth and in washing feet. But how is it that he's able to do that? How is it that that Jesus is able to wield all of this power, have all of these pleasures, have all of this glory, and still be able to lower himself enough to serve us like this? Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, was going back to God. Humility is not a sign of weakness. Humility 
is a sign of strength. Humility does not come from insecurity, but from confidence. The person who has no self-confidence, who has no self-esteem, is that person who doesn't know who they are or why they have value that makes everything about themselves. The person who has no self-confidence, who doesn't know who they are, has to be self-absorbed and self-focused and self-service, but self-serving, right? They have no confidence, so that everything's got to be about them. The person who doesn't know their own value has to have the attention on them to get value. They have to serve others to get credit, serve others to get image, serve others to get status because they have no self-confidence. They can't serve selflessly because their insecurity has enslaved them to need the attention to feel better about themselves. And we've all been there. We've all done that. But Jesus knows his identity. Jesus knows who he is. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He knows who he is, that he is the Son of God. And Jesus is able to rest in the knowledge and in the confidence of the Father's care and provision and plan and in his identity. And because Jesus has this unshakable foundation of, I know who I am and I know who I belong to, it doesn't degrade him or demean him to wash the feet of dirty sinners. Because he is not defined by how low he goes. You see, it takes great strength, great self-confidence to be humble. Humility, then, is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of confidence in one's identity. That you seeing me serve doesn't diminish who I am. I know who I am. We will only be able to be humble when we are no longer insecure in who we are, but rest in the confidence that we're children of God. Uh, my world, world was rocked a little bit this morning because a quote that I've attributed and many I've attributed to C.S. Lewis, I found out this morning from Ryan, thank you Ryan, uh, was not actually just from C.S. Lewis, but from Rick Warren. The quote is true nonetheless. It says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That is really helpful. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself Less, less often. You see, to be humble is not that you've got to conjure up this idea that you're a nobody or that you're trash or that you're weak. It is not to trick yourself into thinking that you're scum, right? That's certainly not what Jesus is doing. He's not thinking less of who he is. He knows who he is. He's from the Father. The Father's given all things into his hand. He knows who he is. He's their master. He's their Lord. He's their king. Humility is not thinking less about yourself. It is simply the confidence in oneself to be more concerned about other people and less concerned about yourself. To think of myself less often, to not be so worried about me, to be more worried about other people. And I've got to know who I am and be rested and have confidence in who I am. To be able to not be worried about me, but to be worried about someone else. Because to be worried about someone else is self-sacrifice, right? I'm going to sacrifice myself. I've got to be confident in who I am. Humility is being less concerned uh, uh, about myself and so that I can sacrifice my schedule. I can sacrifice my time. I can sacrifice my desires, my checklist, my image. I can sacrifice my plans and be more concerned about how I might use my time and my gifts and my efforts to help and care for and serve you. 
Humility is the ability to be more concerned about the needs of others than you are your own wants or desires. Humility is the opposite of what we think sometimes. It's not to think, oh, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. That's not it. It's the opposite. Humility isn't isn't to think you're nobody. It is to think that the people around you, however, are somebody. To think about the people around you that think these people are important. It's to lower yourself into thinking, I'm not the most important person in the room. I'm going to think about myself a little bit less and think, hey, but these people are important. That these people that we sit next to in this room are image bearers of God. The people that we go to work with are image bearers of God. And the people in this room are brothers and sisters, children of God, heirs to the throne with us. Humility, in many ways, is to recognize the value of other people. Humility is to see that you are not the only important person in the world but that every human bears the spark of, the, of divinity, the image of God, and has value and dignity and worth, and therefore are worth your time and your service. If Jesus, the Son of God, can humble himself enough to put on flesh, to come to earth, to take the form of a servant and wash feet, then I, too, as his disciple, can learn to humble myself, to sacrifice my plans, my checklist, my desires, my wants, to serve those around me. What would you think... If, you dro- if your boss dropped by your house one day randomly uh, before you got home and you pulled in and noticed uh, that he was uh, there uh, raking your leaves, how would you feel if you came home one day and the governor, Mike DeWine, was in your flower bed picking your weeds? Hey, neighbor, just thought your garden needed a little weeding. Do that in a minute. How would that make you feel? What would you think if you came home one day and the President of the United States had, had his team open the, 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 your door for you and he was in there sweeping your floors? Hey, Joe. What would you think? You'd think you're not supposed to be doing that. You've got other things to worry about. You're more important than to sweep my floors or to, or to rake my leaves or to pick my weeds. What are you doing? So how are we supposed to think when God shows up and says, hey, man, take off your shoes. I'm going to clean your feet. We react like Peter. No, you ain't touching my feet. I can do that. I can handle that. You don't need to do that, Jesus. you got more important things going on. He says, i got nothing more important than to be right here on my knees washing your feet. i got nothing more important to do than to be here with you washing your feet. When you understand that, what it does is it turns the world upside down. It creates a whole new sort of community, a whole new sort of family, way of life, which is exactly what Jesus has come to do, right? To turn the world right side up again, to fix it, to create this new kingdom, a new kingdom filled with little kings and little queens who come to serve one another. And the reason we can serve one another is because we have confidence And who we are. We're children of God. Kings and queens of a new kingdom. Come to reign with Christ. And so we can serve one another. Because we've been given the highest honor and highest prestige and highest seat in the land. I know who I am. And so I can come and serve in confidence. If we're going to be that sort of community that can serve one another. That we can can show up and say, you know what, i got nothing better to do. Than to help you out. I got nothing better to do than come over and and make sure you're taken care of. 
if we're going to be that sort of community, we've got we to gotta actually love people. Like, not just necessarily feel it all the time, but we've got to choose to love people, and we've got to choose to be humble. But we need a third thing. We will only serve others faithfully when we see that Jesus served us all the way to the cross. We will only serve others faithfully when we see that Jesus has served us. That Jesus has served you and I by going all the way to the cross. My kids have all got rollerblades for Christmas, and I've been all into skating right recently. So we've been. They, my wife took them up to the to the roller rink, to the skate, the castle place, and they went skating, and it brought back memories for me about uh, the games we used to play at, at the roller skating rink, where they would bring out the limbo bar, and they would see who could who could skate the lowest and do limbo under the bar, and they get lower. And some people could bend crazily, right, and get lower under the bar. But they would always play this song. How low can you go, right? How low can you go, right? You're welcome for that. That was free. No extra charge for that. And they play that song, right? And that's the question Jesus is answering for us. How low is Jesus willing to go? How humble, how low is he willing to go to save us? He was willing to put on flesh, come to earth. that's, That's pretty low. He was willing to come wash our feet. That's pretty low. But yet he was willing to go lower still. Jesus the Son of God, perfect in every way, was willing to lower himself to the point of humiliation, to the point of betrayal by his friend there in the room. He was willing to lower himself so much that he would receive willingly a flogging, to be tortured. And he was willing to go so low as to let his creatures, his creation, kill him and put him to death. He lowered himself to the point of absolute self-sacrifice in order to save you and me. To serve us in the ultimate way. He gives his life so that we might find life in him. So that we might be saved from the wrath of God. Be forgiven our sins and be brought into his family. It was his love that motivates him to go to the cross for you. And it was his humility that enabled him to do it. It was his love that drove him to it and his humility that enabled him to do it. To think of your needs far above his own comfort, his, above his own ease, above to stay in heaven and take it easy. Do you see, do you see Jesus serving you in that way? Do you see the master, the Lord, the king of kings humbling himself and loving you to serve you in that way? To come and to die for you. Do you see that? That, that not, only did he, not only that, but do you see him serving you even now? Do you see him serving you now by guiding you, caring for you, interceding to the Father for you? That every moment he's still serving you. That he knew all of your sin and still served you to the cross and even now. You see, we've got to love people. We've got to put on humility, but also we've got to look at this work of Jesus on our behalf. We've got to look at the way he has served us from his high position, lowering himself so far to die, to transform our lives. If we are going to be a people who serve others, if we're going to be a community that serves others, if we're going to be the sort of church, the sort of community that is different, that is not marked by power and prestige and political maneuvering, but marked by selfishness and individualism, but instead marked by loving care, instead marked by humble servants, then we've got to understand these three things, that we've got to genuinely love people, 
If we don't love people, our service will always be self-service. We must choose to love them even when we don't feel it. We must choose to love and not let our emotions lead us, but to let our love lead us. We must put on humility. you got to have confidence in your identity and who you are in Christ. So confident that you can lower yourself and that lowering does not diminish who you are. you got to be confident in who you are in Christ to be able to lower yourself like that, to serve others. And finally, you have to behold Jesus. Like, you can't just go, oh yeah, you got to behold him. you got to see him modeling service all the way to the cross for you. You get to stand in awe and in wonder and in almost disbelief that God would do this for us. That our master would love us enough to die for us. And it's only to the extent that you grasp the reality of what God has done and how he has served you that you get that down deep in your heart will enable you to love people when it's hard and be humble enough to serve like Jesus did. So let me ask this final question. I think a practical question. Who should we serve? We know what we should serve like Jesus. We should love, be humble, and see who he is and, and what he's done for us, and that should en- enable us. But, but who should we serve? I'm going to give you uh, three things, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means. But three things I want us to make sure we, we see. First, we have to serve our church family. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You may not like some of them, right? Like someone might get on your nerves. There might be what Rick Warren called EGRs, extra grace required, but to put up with some of you, right? I can love you and put up with you. You're like that crazy uncle that always comes to Thanksgiving, but we want him there, right, because we love him. we got to love and serve our church family. The Bible says that the world will know us by how we love one another. If we can't love each other through all our quirks and quirks and weirdness and difficulties, we can't love each other, we got no shot at loving anybody else. Can't love each other. People who are, we understand we're all in this same boat, broken and need the grace of God. We can't love each other. We got no hope to love anybody else. So, first things, we got to love and serve our church family. The church is this embassy, right? We're an embassy in a foreign land. That's how we need to think about the church. We are this outpost, right, in a, in a foreign, hostile land. And we are to create a different culture. We are creating a different culture that stands in contrast to the world. We love and with humility serve one another, and that is countercultural. It stands in contrast to the world. And therefore, we, this embassy becomes this lighthouse exposing the darkness all around us. And we're this foreshadow of what the kingdom to come is like, right? We're a foreshadowing of what everything will be like when Jesus comes back. And so we've got to serve our church for the world to see. But then also, we've got to serve the world. We've been sent by Jesus into the world to be his witnesses to him. He says not only do we got to go baptize in his name, but also to teach them all that I've commanded you. We've got to teach them. And he's commanded us to serve us. We've got to go and model for the world what it's like to serve. We proclaim the gospel with our words, but we also model it with our actions as we serve. Not self-service, but genuine service out of love. And finally, we even have to serve our enemies. We have to serve our enemies. John makes it clear. That not only is Judas Iscariot here at, 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 at this meal, but that Jesus already knows that very soon Judas is going to betray Jesus. He's going to sell him for a few pieces of silver and help lead to his arrest and his death. And knowing this, Jesus having this knowledge that this man is about to sell him out, is about to betray him, 
Jesus gets on his knees and he washes this man's feet. He washes this man who is going to go from his friend to his enemy, who's going to betray him, and yet still he washes his feet. There are people in your life who have hurt you, who have wronged you and mistreated you. And not only are you called to forgive them, but if you have opportunity, you are to serve even to them. Now that doesn't mean you put yourself in danger or in bad situations all the time. It means we use wisdom and discernment, but we are to serve those who even would not appreciate our service or to serve those who would never serve us in return and have wronged us and hurt us in return. You're to serve the boss who hates you. You're to serve the boss that you hate getting up to work for every morning because he loathes you and makes life difficult for you. You're to serve him. You're to serve that friend who's failed you. You're to serve that family member who's never appreciated the family and who always makes everything hard every time we're trying to get together. You're to serve them. And in serving them, you show them Jesus. I'm thankful for a church here who has truly embraced what it means to grow and being radical in generosity. And you know, uh, that's one of our core values. And our core values aren't things we've arrived at. They're aspirational, right? We're saying, that's something we got to get to. We're trying to be a people who are radical in generosity. And we're on our way there. We're becoming that, right? And that doesn't just mean giving money. It certainly means that. But it certainly also means giving our time and our effort, using our gifts to serve people in a radical, generous way. And I'm thankful for our church that's begun to, done that, begun to do that, who has taken that call seriously. There are some of you in this room right now, and you need to start serving the people in your life more seriously. For some of you, that's your spouse. And you need to take seriously the call to serve your spouse uh, or your children more intentionally. And humble yourself and carve out time to serve them. There's some of you in this room, and you need to be serve individuals in our church. You need to find ways and figure out the needs and serve people in our church who, who need serving. There's some of you in this room, but you need to find a place of service in our church. Like, like you're, you're showing up, and you, you, you love being here, but, but you're just sitting in that chair receiving, which is good. I want you to come receive. But, you, but, but you're also called to serve. And so you know where we always need service? In that hallway over there. Darcy, can I get an amen? Like Darcy, you got to be loud or not. I need an amen, Darcy. We got kids over there that need to be served. And we'll never have enough people over there serving. We're never full. So some of you need to go over there and serve. We got a tech booth back here of people we need to serve. We got coffee need to be made. Dude shows up at 6 in the morning every week to make you coffee. We need somebody to take that load off of him. We got all kinds of people serving all over the place. And we need all kinds of help. And so some of you need to say, hey, I want to serve. I need to find a place to do that. Help me. You need to come ask, hey, where, where can I do this? We'll, we'll point you in the right direction. Some of you need to do that. But some of you in this room, you cannot serve like Jesus because Jesus is not your Lord and your master. You can't serve him because you can't serve because you haven't even begun the journey of making him your Lord and your master. And you need to see him today. Serving you. Serving you who has failed him again and again and again. And you need to see him going to a cross, looking at you, knowing all your mistakes and failures, and saying, it was worth it to come and serve you. I got nothing else to do but come and die for you. That's my commitment. And you need to see him doing that for you. And you need to come and say, Brent, or go to somebody and say, hey, 
how do I make him my Lord? How do I make him my king? How do I get this forgiveness that he's offered? And the answer isn't, well, let me go clean my life up. Let me go get my act together first. Right? No, no, no. The answer is you come and you say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm sorry. Be my king. Paid in full. And so if you're here this morning, you've never done that. Maybe you've been religious. You come to church. You like church, maybe. You think these are good truths. But serving people without Jesus, foolishness. Doing good things without Jesus, foolishness. You can be the best servant in the world and bust hell wide open. Because step one is to see that your master went to a cross to forgive you of your sin. And until you embrace him and ask him to forgive you of your sin, you don't belong to him. And so maybe there are some of you in this room right now. Stop playing games. Be honest with yourself and say, Brent, help me, show me how I get this forgiveness too. It's super easy. He's just waiting to give it to you. So this morning, ask yourself this question. Who do I need to serve more intentionally? Where should I be serving in this church? And can I even serve yet because of Jesus, my Lord? Tim McGraw's song asks the question, how would we live if we thought we were going to die? But as Christians, we know the answer because we've already died. We were buried in an empty tomb. And every day we're called to pick up our cross and keep dying. We know what it's like to die. That's what we're all about is death. Because we know that in death, we sacrifice, we lay down our life and we die. And in that, we find resurrection. Resurrection in Christ. New life in Christ. It only comes through death. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the kind of God who doesn't stand up on Mount Olympus throwing lightning bolts and holds power and just wants to have luxury and, and prestige and glory and everybody else get out of my way. But rather you are the kind of God who took notice of us. And not just notice but loved us. And not just loved us, but love that moved to action and humility that led to an incarnation, that led to a coming to earth and led to serving us and teaching us and modeling for us and dying for us. Father, would you let that truth of the gospel of how you've served us on the cross get worm its way deeper and deeper into our hearts? And would you make us the sort of church and the sort of community that is able to serve each other that when someone has a need, that we're the first one in line and say, hey, I'm there to help. What do you need? How can I help? How can I serve? When there's a, a, an opportunity in our church for service that we're there, let me help. That we're the kind of people who can forsake our own checklists, our own desires and needs and say, I'm here for you. I think less of myself, not, not less of myself, but myself less and come to serve you. But Father, for those people in this room who can't serve in this way that you've called us to because you're not their Lord, would you give them the courage this morning to come say, Brent, help me figure this out. Let me figure out what it means to be a Christian and to take the very first step of having my sins forgiven and being brought into the family of God. God, help us to answer these questions. Father, we love you in Christ's name we pray. All those people said, let's stand together.